0: Hi, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf, and welcome to my podcast, Cleaning Up the Mental Mess. In today's podcast, I have a really important discussion about depression and the fact that depression is not caused by chemical imbalance. In fact, the theory that depression is caused by chemical imbalance in the brain has been around since the 1960s. But for years, even though 85% of people believe that this is actually the case, For years, many experts have doubted this, feeling it is an oversimplified explanation for a very complex condition. Dr. Joanna Moncrief and her team set out to challenge the serotonin theory in a systematic review of available research. They also went one step further in their conclusion by suggesting that antidepressants are ineffective at treating depression and have largely worked as a placebo. So in today's podcast, I interview Dr. Joanna Moncrief, a psychiatry professor at the University College of London and lead author of the study about this research. We also discuss the causes of depression and how to withdraw from antidepressants, and we touch on ketamine. So let's get on to today's podcast. Life can be hard, and it's easy to feel stressed, anxious, and out of control. What if there was a way to take back control? What if there was a practical way to detox your brain? This is now possible with NeuroCycle, the first ever scientifically tested brain detox app shown to help reduce anxiety and depression by up to 81%. Users are guided through a variation of audio and video, brain exercises and mind management lessons every day. I'm excited to share some of the latest features in the app, including guides for children and parents, detailed feedback and recommendations, written guides through days 22 through 63 of the NeuroCycle and an easy way to track your progress. There are over 500,000 NeuroCycle users worldwide and the app has helped change thousands of lives, including people trying to find purpose in life, overcoming fear, better sleep, improved relationships, managing intrusive thoughts, depression and anxiety and so much more. NeuroCycle is for everybody. No matter who you are, what you've been through, what you do, you have an incredible mind and brain that is always on and needs to be managed so that you can live your best both mentally and physically. This app is designed for individuals, couples, families, businesses or corporations. For everyone, everywhere. Join us by committing just a few minutes a day and see how your life is transformed. In just 63 days, you will have begun rewiring your brain for a happier and healthier life. Download the NeuroCycle app today and start changing your life one thought at a time. Just look for NeuroCycle on the iTunes App Store or Google Play or visit NeuroCycle.app. The link and more information will be in the show notes. Once again, it's my absolute honor and privilege to have someone that I admire so much, Dr. Joanna Moncrief or Professor Joanna Moncrief back on the podcast. Joanna, you are phenomenal in everything that you do, but you have rocked the world in the last month. And I have been watching this in the media. And as I said to you just before we started, what I am so excited about is this build, this you know, the, the tipping point that we've been trying to reach when it comes to bringing the truth across with mental health. I think honestly, this paper that you've been the lead author of, you and Mark Horowitz and your colleagues, has almost has put us on that tipping point of bringing the truth and a new narrative to mental health. So. Congratulations on a paper that you recently published, the Serotonin Theory of Depression, a systematic umbrella review of the evidence, where you basically showed that the decades-old theory that depression is caused by serotonin, you found that there was no consistent evidence of an association between serotonin and depression. So welcome back onto the show. I cannot wait to hear what you've got to say. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Caroline. Thank you for inviting me. So, So maybe I'll just talk about
0: that paper to begin with and just talk about Absolutely. how we came to do it. Before you do, Joanna, can we just state to people that this this is not just any paper. This is a paper that's a landmark study. And it's actually in, in the top 5% of all research scored by Al- Almetric, a company that analyzes where published research is shared. And then, Joanna, you have another statistic just to show the impact that this has had globally.
1: Yes, I mean, the impact has been amazing. It's in the top 320 papers that have ever been shared out of 21 million scientific papers. That's absolutely phenomenal. And and the article that we wrote about it on a a site called The Conversation has been read over a million times. That's incredible. It it really seems to have struck a chord with people, really interested people. I think that's understandable because it, it shows that a fact what people believed was an established scientific fact this idea that depression is caused by low serotonin turns out actually not to have scientific support so that's what i think it's been you know it's it's been such a, a
0: major finding now you've been interviewed on multiple it's just everywhere it's like it's really taken the world by storm and people are asking so many questions and this is why i'm so excited to dive in because we're going to, you're going to walk us through what you found and all the different ways that you looked at serotonin as well as helping us to understand you know how antidepressants work are they should they even be called antidepressants as we know dr peter gotcha he always talks about them as depression pills but they're not antidepressants per se you know and just the whole transition into how they really work so i'm really really thrilled and dive in and i'm going to keep quiet and let you take over Thank you, thank you. Yeah, no, no. That's, I mean, that's a good point. And
1: lots of people that I've spoken to over the last few weeks have said things like, you know, this is mind blowing. Uh, we've no idea. So many people have written to me and uh, other authors of the paper saying, you know, we were told this was a chemical imbalance. Thank you for revealing that it's not. So, so uh, yeah, I wanted to start with why we thought about doing the paper, why we, why we started doing this bit of research. And it was because it had been rumoured in the scientific community for many years that the evidence for the serotonin theory of depression actually was pretty shaky and inconsistent. But there was no paper that you could point to that had really got that evidence together in a systematic way that could provide an overview that could enable anyone to draw a proper conclusion about the state of the evidence for for this idea. So that that was the motivation. We looked at all the main areas of research that have looked for links between serotonin and depression. It's not possible at the moment to measure Brain serotonin directly in human beings. So these are areas of research that use various indirect measures to estimate brain serotonin levels and activity, such as looking at the levels of serotonin in the blood. It's probably the simplest one. Also looking at levels of the serotonin breakdown products in the brain fluid, the cerebrospinal fluid. And then there were then there are studies of serotonin receptors. Of the protein that removes serotonin from the synapse, that the gap between the nerves, which in which it is active, and and genetic studies, studies of the, of the gene that codes for that transporter protein, and then there are also some studies which tried to artificially lower serotonin levels in people who without depression and see if that could induce depressive symptoms. So we looked at all those different areas of research and found that none of them provided any convincing evidence that serotonin was unusually low in people with depression compared to people who don't have depression. And also, there was no convincing evidence that lowering serotonin can produce depression or, or lowering of mood. So that was our study. And so we concluded that the evidence for the serotonin theory of depression is you know does not support the theory is not convincing and we we also concluded that this raises questions about our use of antidepressants because because antidepressants have been thought to work for many decades by reversing an underlying abnormality of serotonin that's how they've been thought to work and that is how the public have been told that they work so this idea that depression is caused by low serotonin has been conveyed to people as an established fact. And the idea that antidepressants work by reversing this has also been conveyed as something that is an established fact, not just a hypothesis or a speculation. And the reason that this research really raises questions about the whole use of antidepressants is that if we do not have Good evidence that antidepressants work by reversing some sort of underlying chemical imbalance or some sort of other underlying abnormality, then we have to look at other possible ways in which they might be having their effects. Mm -hmm. And this is where the research uh, relates to my previous work on the disease and drug-centered models of drug action. So, The disease-centred model of drug action is this idea that drugs are working by reversing an underlying abnormality. So the serotonin theory of depression was an example of the disease-centred model of drug action. But as I've been saying for many years now, there is another way of understanding what drugs do, really a much simpler and more, to my mind, more, more plausible and obvious way of thinking about what they do which is what I've called the drug-centred model. And this is the idea that antidepressants, like other drugs that we prescribe for mental health problems, produce mental changes, which would occur in anyone who takes them, not just someone with a diagnosis of depression or anxiety. Mm -hmm. In the same way that drugs like alcohol or cannabis produce mental changes. Now, the changes that are produced by antidepressants don't make people euphoric in the same way that alcohol and cannabis can. But nevertheless, they do produce these these changes, which include, depending on the drug and antidepressants actually consist of many different sorts of chemicals, many different sorts of drugs. But depending on the drug, antidepressants can produce feelings of lethargy and tiredness, feelings of agitation in some people, which seem to be more frequent in younger people for some reason we don't quite understand and they also are commonly reported to have an effect that we might call emotional blunting and that means that they reduce the intensity of all emotions both positive emotions like happiness and joy but also negative emotions including depression and anxiety and and fear and Obviously, those effects will have an impact on someone who is suffering from depression or anxiety. Some people might find those effects to be useful. And those effects may account for the small difference that we see between antidepressants and placebos in randomised controlled trials of antidepressants. And it is those randomised controlled trials that are always quoted as providing the evidence that antidepressants work. So lots of the critics of this paper that that, that we've just published on uh, serotonin and depression have said that we shouldn't worry about how antidepressants work, we know they work, and that's all we need to know. So what they are referring to are these randomized controlled trials that show that antidepressants lower people's depression score, on average, a little bit more than taking a placebo pill. Those those trials also show, and no one would dispute this, that the majority of the effect also occurs in people who take the placebo. So the effect of taking a placebo, the hope it gives you and the connection, the, the endorsement it gives you, it is helpful in improving people's mood. That's very well demonstrated. And we also know that people can sometimes guess whether they're on taking the antidepressant or the placebo and because of the physical or mental changes that the antidepressants produce, so including this emotional numbing effect, but also due to other changes like some of them can cause a dry mouth or some nausea and upset bowels and all those changes can cue people, can cause people to guess whether they are taking the active antidepressant or the placebo in one of those randomized controlled trials. So people on the antidepressant in those trials are not only experiencing the ordinary placebo effect that people in the placebo group are getting, but they are also possibly experiencing what we might call an amplified placebo effect, which they get because they notice that they're taking something, a drug that actually has a noticeable effect on them. That, that's the justification for saying that drugs work. It's those randomised controlled trials.
0: High quality meals can be hard to come by. It can be hard to find products that not only taste delicious, but also come without a price tag that makes you gasp, especially these days. And with my busy schedule, I certainly do not have the time to spend hours and hours looking for high quality foods, which is why I'm a big fan of ButcherBox. They take the guesswork out of finding high quality meat and seafood you can trust with their 100% grass fed beef, free range organic chicken, pork raised, crate free, and wild caught seafood. I love that all their products are humanely raised with no antibiotics or added hormones. Plus, they make everything so convenient. You get just what you want delivered right to your doorstep with free shipping for the continental U.S. and no surprise fees. You can also choose from a variety of box plan options from curated to customized and change your plan whenever you want. I personally love their chicken breasts, which I often add into a creamy pasta dish that my family loves called Chicken Alla King. My husband also loves grilling their salmon, which tastes incredible with rice or in a coconut curry. But don't worry if you're not sure what to do with the meat and seafood you buy, because Butcher Box has many recipe inspirations, guides, tips, and hacks. Some are even personalized, so you can cook up a mouth-watering meal every day of the week. Take chicken breast off your grocery list. Butcher Box is offering our listeners an incredible deal that they've never offered before. Free chicken for a year. Get two pounds of free range organic chicken breast for free in every order when you sign up at butcherbox.com forward slash Leaf. Claim this deal at butcherbox.com forward slash Leaf. The link and details will be in the show notes. Could I ask you to make a statement? I know with those, they use the hats, Hamilton, Hamilton Depression Scale. And it's only a two-point difference. And I'm not sure everyone's even aware of that With the on, on drug versus placebo. And that's not even a significant change, yeah. but it's used to make this decision. And then there was some other comment in one of the, the posts that you've written about this. And I think in the in the article too, you mentioned that the public, 85% of the public think that this chemical imbalance is the in terms of serotonin is actually the truth and only 15% don't. And how that's shifted from... I think in the fifties or sixties. I'm not sure what the time frame was. it's shifted. It's completely reversed. So, 85 percent of people, if, I, if I'm correct in saying that, are think are understanding this to be the reason for depression, and that this is that the, the, the antidepressants are anti, like an antibiotic. That is quite frightening, because right. also the psychiatrists have been that have been the naysayers and, and criticizing. This paper that you that you and your, your co- colleagues have brought out, I've been saying, oh, we knew this all along, but then why have they promulgated this theory? So I just wanted to throw that out there and, yes. and correct, you know, talk about. Yeah, that yeah, a
1: yeah. No, no, really good points, Caroline. Thank you. These randomised tri- trials use various measures of depression, and the most commonly used is called the Hamilton measuring scale for depression because it was developed by someone called someone Hamilton. Can't remember his first name, and it is a fifty two point scale, and the difference between Antidepressants and placebo in the amount of change that people experience on this depression scale in these randomized trials is two points. So two points on a 52-point scale. And other studies that have compared changes in the Hamilton score, Hamilton scale score, to observer ratings of people's general levels of improvement have shown that a two point difference doesn't correspond to any noticeable improvement. You need to have a seven or eight point difference to show a mild level of improvement. So, so it, it, the difference between antidepressants and placebo is really very small. I think that's that's an important point for people to realise, and that's why it's partly why I think it's you know so so likely that that difference may be caused by an amplified placebo effect, or indeed some of these changes like the emotional numbing actually reducing people's depression scores because they're they're feeling less.
0: Yeah, and that's the um, work. That's how they are working in essence. Yes, yes. Is-
1: so thinking that a drug might work by by causing mental alterations including something like emotional numbing is very different from thinking that it might work by rectifying a chemical imbalance. This is why it is so so worrying that so many people have come to accept this idea yeah. that antidepressants work by correcting a chemical imbalance so yeah it, uh, if, if you if you tell people you have a chemical imbalance in your brain, you know a brain disorder a brain abnormality mm-hmm. that's a really shocking thing to hear yeah and obviously it would be sensible then to take something that is offered to you as a way of correcting that abnormality sounds
0: so simple and
1: And 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 not only do people then get onto drugs that they might not otherwise have chosen to have taken, but their whole perception about themselves is changed. They start to think of themselves as as damaged or defective in some way, Mm -hmm. uh, and and as needing, you know, a chemical fix to make them whole, to make them right. So so this is a, a very, I think a very debilitating message to have been given to giving to people. And actually there's research that shows that people who believe that depression is due to a chemical imbalance are more pessimistic about their prospects of ever recovering and less likely to think that their own efforts can contribute to a process of recovery. So there is some evidence that it it really is directly damaging for people.
0: Well, they've been told it's a biological basis. They've got a damaged brain. There's something wrong with them as an individual. So why even have hope? It removes hope from people. Yes. And, and and it simplifies, you You said so well in, in one of your interviews that I watched in response to this paper, that it's not just, and I know you get into this, but it's not as simple as you have a chemical imbalance. Nothing in the brain works alone. Everything is in constant and huge biochemical reactions and everything affects everything. So it can never, it's they're not specific to one thing. They do all kinds of other things as well, which I know you'll get into, but it's but depression's complex. So it's almost as though, and Janet, please correct me if I'm wrong, but the way I see this and which I told my patients for years is that depression is not as simple as something in your brain. It's it's so complicated. And we actually do injustice to a person's story and narrative if we just say, hey, it's a chemical imbalance. It's like we don't even honor. We take something that's huge and we actually make it small with that kind of approach.
1: Yes, absolutely. So of course things are going on in the brain when people are feeling yeah, depressed. Exactly. Things fact. going on on in the brain you know, when we're we're happy or or hungry, or when we're walking or talking, everything we do is mediated by the brain. But that doesn't mean that we can understand depression at the level of the brain. And an analogy that I've used in in some things I've written that was actually suggested to me by Dr. Mark Horowitz and other people have, have used this analogy too, is that we can think of depression as an aspect of software, and the brain is the hardware. And if there's a problem if there's a problem, if there is a problem with the hardware, obviously you need to fix it. But if there's a problem with the software, you can't fix that by by fixing the hardware. Mm-mm. You need to fix it at the level of, of the software. And we don't need to think about the, the brain to understand depression. Depression is an emotional emotional reaction that is inflected by our personality and our personal inclination, inclinations and everything that's happened to us in our, our history and development but it is at heart a reaction to the circumstances of our lives. And so in order to understand depression, we need to understand the circumstances that it is a reaction to, combined with some understanding of of the individual's personality, which includes their individual history and and development and everything that, that has happened to them. That's the level at which we need to understand depression, trying to pinpoint depression in the brain. Is a a wasted exercise in my view. We're looking at the wrong level. We're looking in the wrong place. And one of the problems Mm. is we've got all these technologies like MRI scanners, and therefore it's like looking for your keys under the lamppost because we've got these technologies, we look in the brain, but actually we're looking in the wrong place. And we've also, there's also, you know, very strong evidence that again, I don't think anyone would deny that. Depression is related to things that have happened to people either immediately before it comes on or or in their past. So depression is strongly associated with, you know, a history of child abuse and and other sorts of trauma uh, and to things that happen more proximally to people like divorce, unemployment, loneliness, poverty.
0: All these things predict depression very strongly. And that's very well established in the literature, that link. Yes. Very yes. well established. And you know, so it's yes. almost like we have all this proof, but then there's this quick fix kind of mentality that it's yes. and then it removes it away from to society and all that kind of thing, which I know is something you speak about a lot.
1: Yes, yes, absolutely. Because we're focusing on the brain, we're forgetting. To, to think of, of depression as a reaction to circumstances and therefore forgetting yeah. that most important thing in order to understand depression and to help people with depression is to help people to address circumstances the sort of circumstances that make people depressed that's not to say maybe we should say this now that there isn't individual variation some people for you know various reasons to do with with all sorts of things including their genes, but also their, you know, childhoods and development experience, you know, really profound and severe depression. And I, you know, want, want to make clear that I am not saying that that doesn't exist. That there isn't such yeah. a condition as as really severe depression that that is really awful, can go on for quite a long time, is very problematic. But mm-hmm. we have to add to that that we don't have good evidence that. Even very severe depression responds to antidepressants or, or indeed to any other sorts of interventions at the level of the brain.
0: And that also brings us to that there's a lot of research also showing, Jane, about the fact that people that get put on have an acute episode of depression, and they get put on to antidepressants and it turns into a chronic problem. So it gets, it, it gets worse. And there's, there's evidence in that line as well, which people are not being told about the whole informed consent story, which is another whole Yes. Ball game as well that isn't being discussed sufficiently. well well
1: i mean informed consent is, is a huge issue because mm. you know we've been misinforming people yeah. by telling them that telling them that you know depression is is a chemical imbalance profoundly misinforming them because because like i said there's a huge difference between thinking that an antidepressant is going to correct an underlying abnormality and thinking that it's a drug that is actually going to change the normal state of your brain and um, we'll, you know, will produce mental changes through changing your normal brain chemistry. That's a very different catalyst. Very message. different. Mm. And, and people, I think, would generally be much more cautious about starting on an antidepressant if it was put in that way. And I think by not telling people, by not explaining that, we have been misinforming people. Yeah. And the the effort by critics of this paper to say antidepressants just work. It doesn't matter how they work it's probably some other, they're probably rectifying some other abnormality that we haven't quite pinned down yet, but there are lots of other possibilities. Just saying that and not saying, actually, we know that there are drugs that change brain chemistry and cause mental alterations as a result of doing that is is misinforming people, I believe.
0: Oh, absolutely. And there's a whole, that, that goes to a whole sort of almost legal implication because a lot of those psychiatrists that criticised you they said, "Oh, we've known this for years. This is not new." Well, if they've known it for years, then why have they not informed? Why have they continued the story?
1: Yes, absolutely, and and I do think that I do think that many psychiatrists are enormously threatened by by having to admit that actually we really don't have evidence that our treatments are working in a disease centered fashion. We don't really have evidence that they are mm. working by targeting an underlying abnormality. I've always said that you know psychiatrists can embrace this model and, and can use it you know in, in, a, in an informed way to use drugs in a very cautious and sensible manner. I'm not someone who doesn't who says we should never use drugs for any any mental health problem, but I do think we need to understand the nature of, of the drugs that we're using and by by promoting this idea that drugs are working, by rectifying some un- underlying abnormality, even if you've you know, acknowledged that the serotonin abnormality doesn't stand up to scrutiny, but you still go on suggesting that it's some un- other abnormality you haven't quite pinned down yet. By doing that, we are really misrepresenting
0: what, what psychiatric drugs are and, and what they're doing and how they, they can affect people. I love how you've explained that. And you, in our previous interview, and I recommend everyone goes back and re listens to that again. And we'll put all the links and Joanna's book as well. She's written some incredible books. So many papers. Her blog is incredible. Her, that's a great place to get good information. But you do, you you indicate to you very clearly with your drug versus disease-based model that the drug, it's go, whoever takes those things, you're going to get affected like you would with alcohol or something. But disease is, I think the, probably the easiest way is the, the insulin. That's what people have been sold antidepressants for depression or like insulin for diabetes, it's the worst comparison because you're comparing a disease based on a biological change that you can identify with testing and address versus something that is someone's narrative, their life experience that is is going to have an impact in the brain versus caused by the brain. The cause is not in their brain, the cause is in what their experience is and their circumstances and so on. And that's really the lie that's been sold to people.
1: Yeah. So maybe it would be helpful here just to talk about pain medications, which I sometimes Great. use as an example to illustrate these two models. Great idea. And, and and I think it's also useful because a lot of the critics of this paper have been saying paracetamol works and we don't quite know how, so that shows that it doesn't matter how antidepressant I saw that. Yeah. So pain medications like paracetamol and aspirin, they're not what we might call psychoactive drugs. They're not drugs that change your mental state but they do relieve pain and therefore we can assume safely that they work on the underlying mechanisms of pain in one way or another we have some understanding of how paracetamol works it's actually wrong that we don't understand it completely now opiate anesthetics like morphine and heroin diamorphine also work on underlying pain mechanisms According to what we could call a disease-centered model. So they're working to reverse or impact on the mechanisms that produce the symptom of pain in some way. But they but unlike paracetamol and aspirin, opiate painkillers do have, do produce mental changes. They are psychoactive drugs. And one of the mental alterations that opiates produce is a feeling of emotional indifference. So people who've taken opiates for pain will often say that they still have some pain left, but they don't care about it anymore. Now, I remember being told this years and years ago Mm. when I was a junior house officer working on a surgical ward. I remember being told this effect of opiates by people who'd taken them. And you say, do you have any, you know, uh, do you have any pain anymore? And people might say, well, a little bit, but it's fine. I don't care. It's not bothering me now. And that aspect of the effect of opiates is what we might call a drug-centred effect. It is is an effect that is a consequence of the mental alterations that, that, that opiates are producing, the alterations to the emotional experience of pain, not just the physical experience, but the emotional experience of pain. And drugs, psychiatric drugs like opiates, and they're not exactly the same as as opiates. As I've said, many of them don't cause any any euphoria or any pleasant effects, but they do affect emotions. And many of them also have some sort of emotion numbing effect. It, it, It has, I think, a slightly different quality to the emotion numbing you get with opiates. But nevertheless, there is this reduction in intensity of emotions that happens with antidepressants and um, antipsychotics and other psychiatric drugs indeed. And in fact, I was even doing a little research project with a a student of mine. She's looking at the use of propranolol by musicians. And they are also reporting emotional blunting with propranolol, which some of them find helpful because they want to blunt their emotions when they're playing. They're using propranolol in order to help them play but some of them report that it's actually unhelpful because they mm. need their emotions in order to play well so i think that's you know i think that's a good way of understanding the the effects of antidepressants they have this blunting effect that some people might find useful if they're really in a dark place and can't you know just can't cope in any other way but other people are going to find it really really unpleasant and really not like that feeling of being blunted and i think overall blunting emotions is not a helpful way in the long run to resolve the issue Mm. to to resolve issues exactly I I think so you mentioned you mentioned this idea that antidepressants lose their effects and can actually make people more depressed in the long term I think the evidence on that is is the evidence on their long-term effects is very slim and some some shows that people Seem to be people who take antidepressants long term seem to be more depressed than people with depression who don't take them long term. Some evidence suggests there's not much difference. There's no good evidence that suggests that taking antidepressants long term makes people better. The evidence about long term antidepressant use is is the evidence from discontinuation trials.
0: Yeah. Uh,
1: which is a, a different, a, a different totally different co- Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because we know that people discontinuing antidepressants as other drugs. Have all sorts of you know adverse withdrawal effects. Withdrawal effects, mm-hmm. the Results of those studies, but I think that the long-term abuse use of antidepressants can be harmful for for a number of reasons. Firstly, we don't know what on earth is happening in the brain. What, what anti- long-term antidepressant use is doing to the brain in a, in a chemical or structural sense. Yeah. We know well that while you're taking an antidepressant, sexual side effects are very common, including loss of libido. Mm-hmm. And some people experience these sexual side effects even after they've stopped taking the antidepressant, particularly loss of libido, which suggests that the antidepressants are resetting something in the brain, you know. An adaptation homeostatic response, yeah. Exactly. Something to do with sexual function that sometimes can persist even after you've stopped taking the drugs, which which is very worrying.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: that's one mechanism that they might not be helpful and even be harmful to people in the long term. But another mechanism I think relates back, to, relates back to the placebo effect. So I think in the short term, if you tell people they've got a brain problem and we've got a solution for that, look, we've got this pill, it's going to put the brain problem right. I think in the short term, that that, in, that does give people hope and increases expectations of improvement. But in the long term, that's when I think that message is really is really harmful because people then don't necessarily pay attention to the ways in which their own actions and their own efforts actually are helping them to improve. So there may be lots of things that they have done that have helped them to improve, but they don't necessarily recognise that they would attribute their improvement to the use of a drug, and so when they have problems in the future, they haven't they haven't learned they haven't absorbed and remembered those things that they did that helped them, and they're not able then to put them into to
0: practice. So important what you've said. That's so vitally important because that healing is going to come from trying to understand not I am depression, but I am depressed because of. Even if you can never understand why someone maybe you know, raped you or something or, you know, abuse of marriage, but you know, you may not get all the answers, but at least you know that there's a source of your pain and there's a way of learning to manage that versus just suppressing yes, with the yes. medication. It's just going to eventually get worse because thoughts are going to explode. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And
1: And I think people generally get better at managing their moods as they get older. Having said that, we know that we know that you know some older people can experience quite severe depression. Yeah. It's related to all sorts of social factors to do with, you know, loneliness, retirement, bereavement,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and 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 you know and, and maybe maybe past attitudes towards mental health problems that were not helpful. That meant you know that meant people weren't able to ask for help uh, or support from other people. So I think there are reasons why older people, you know, may be more likely to get a severe depression. But in general, I think that people in many ways get better at managing their moods as they get older. And, and this is why it's really worrying that so many younger people are starting to take antidepressants. So mm-hmm. the rate of use among
0: young people is around one in 10 in the United wow. Kingdom at the moment. Uh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I read an article this morning, Joanna, that they said it's one in three in the UK. You know, so I'm thinking one in 10, one in three, but I, I, I need oh. to double check that statistic. I'll mm. send that through to yeah. you, that article. Yeah, but yeah. it's just, it's in the, in the United States, it's the same thing. I, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but that is just really a significant point. Yeah, 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 no.
1: And I think the idea of lots of young people starting on antidepressants should really worry us, you know, because I think it will, it, it, it may hinder their emotional development, especially if they end up stuck on, stuck on them for long periods of time.
0: And we don't know yeah. the interaction with hormones. So if you think of the 12 to 18 year old or the 11 to 18 year old with all the hormonal changes, there's just not enough research showing, you know, mm-hmm. what's going on there. And so, yeah, it's a hugely yeah. problematic it, area. There's
1: not, and, and and we know from research on antipsychotics, for example, that young mm-hmm. people's brains are more susceptible to harmful effects of medication. So, Young people who take antipsychotics are more likely to get diabetes and more likely to get tardive dyskinesia, this yeah. neurological side effect of antipsychotics, than older people who start on them. So, and, and, and the same sort of research hasn't been done with antidepressants, but I think, you know, we have to assume that younger people's brains may be more vulnerable to drug effects. Than what we
0: actually realise. I'm sure it will come as no surprise to you that to think well and manage your mental health Your brain needs proper nourishment. But many of us don't have the time to take multiple different products all day long for better brain and body health, more energy and optimized immune systems. This is why I love Athletic Greens. It has just what I need in one drink. Best of all, it doesn't taste like it's super healthy, honestly. Athletic Greens has a mild tropical taste that I actually look forward to each morning when I wake up. Even my husband, who can't stand things that taste too green, loves his Athletic Greens in the morning. With one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your brain, your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. All the things. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash LEAF. Again, that is athleticgreens.com forward slash LEAF to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. The link and offer details will be in the show notes. It's a huge topic and, and we're going to be bringing you back again for more, much, much more discussion. What I would love to do now is... There's so many things I want to try and cover, but let's transition over to something that I think is extremely important because if people are hearing this, what we don't want people to do is go and stop immediately because of the withdrawal effects, because the brain's adapted. You're an expert in this area in terms of well, especially from antidepressants, withdrawal and antipsychotics. I know you have experience in in all these areas. Could we talk a little bit about the importance of not just stopping and what withdrawal looks like and maybe a bit of guidelines? I know you started for the NIMH, if I'm correct the NIH you have setting up a center, or you have already set up a center to help with with drug withdrawal. So if you could talk to, yes. talk to that, so yes. we leave people with a, and we will take this further. I just want you to let all my audience know: Joanna will be coming back on a regular basis to help us in this area because she's an expert and we need this guidance. But for now, I'd love us just to transition over and understand. If you are now frightened by this message, you know you don't. There, there's a way forward, and there's truth. Sometimes it's scary getting these this information but there is a way forward.
1: Yes, yes. So thank you, Caroline. This is a good opportunity to say to people what my advice would be if they're hearing this idea that the chemical imbalance model of depression has not been proven, has not been established for the first time. What I I have said to people is to take their time to to think about this issue and what it means for them to discuss it with people close in their lives and to go and at some point go and discuss it with their prescriber and if people then make a decision that they would like to come off their medication they need to do that very slowly and gradually with the support of uh, uh, of their doctor hopefully or some other health professional And the reason that people need to come off medication slowly is because antidepressants, like many other drugs that work on the brain, cause what we could call physical dependence. That means that the brain has adapted to the presence of the drug. It's actually changed in some ways. And therefore, if you remove the drug suddenly, the brain changes that have developed to counteract the drug's effects are left there unchallenged by the drug. And that's what leads to withdrawal effects. So, we know that these happen when people have been using drugs like alcohol uh, or opiates for a long period, for long periods of time, and and also drugs like benzodiazepines that are frequently prescribed for anxiety. But, and, and drugs can cause these changes without necessarily being drugs that cause euphoria or pleasant effects. So, drugs like alcohol and opiates, some people find their effects very pleasant and therefore get into a cycle where they're always looking for more in order to get a hit, in order to get a high. And that's a different sort of phenomena than than, than getting physically dependent on a drug. You don't have to have that sort of drug-seeking behavior, craving for a a drug-induced high, to become physically dependent on a drug. Physical dependence can happen with drugs that do not make you high. I just think that's really important to very say. Very good,
0: very good point. I'm very um, pleased you brought that up.
1: Yeah, and it doesn't, and and, phys- and and the other important thing to say is that physical dependence can happen at prescribed doses. It doesn't only happen when people are sort of upping the dose all the time as we hear that, mm. you know, opiate users might be doing. So people who are taking prescribed doses of, antipsychotic, uh, uh, sorry, of antidepressants may experience withdrawal symptoms when they stop them. Surveys have shown that about 50% of people seem to experience withdrawal and about half of them experience really quite severe and unpleasant withdrawal that can go on for a long time. So that's why it's really important that people reduce their medication slowly. And you need to reduce the medication slowly because if you reduce the dose by a little bit, that gives the brain a chance to readjust to the lower dose of the medication before you then make the next reduction. So, that's the principle behind slow reduction. It's also important to go slower as you get to lower doses because it's the lower doses of, of drugs that have the strongest effects. As you push the dose up above a certain level, the increase in dose actually doesn't. Increase the effect much any longer. This is called a hyperbolic curve. This, this has been the area of interest of my co-author on the serotonin paper, Mark, Dr. Mark Horowitz. Who mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe you might want to have on. Yes, it's,
0: definitely. It's very definitely. good. At, very mm-hmm. good at
1: explaining this better than me. <laughs> anyway, the, the point is that, the point is that you need to reduce drugs more slowly as you get down to lower doses, and this is particularly important for people who've been on the drugs for a long time. So people who've been on drugs for a shorter time are less likely to get into difficulties with withdrawal. People who've just been on for a few months may be able to stop their their drugs without too much difficulty fairly quickly. But people who've been on the drugs for years are the ones that are more likely to experience difficulties with withdrawal. Now, one of the reasons this is not well known about is that, of course, people who've Ended up staying on antidepressants for for years at a time, and and then try and come off them may then interpret the symptoms they get as a recurrence of their underlying problem. So we know that we know that withdrawal symptoms from antidepressants include symptoms such as depression and anxiety, particularly anxiety. Actually, mm-hmm. anxiety, agitation, sleeplessness dizziness and these electric shock sensations that also mm. people also experience when they're coming off Brain zaps the diazepines mm. brain zaps exactly these can occur when people are coming off antidepressants particularly in relation to some sorts of antidepressants like uh, paroxetine seroxat and venlafaxine effexor they they particularly seem to produce these withdrawals that include these these very unpleasant symptoms called
0: brain zaps can I quickly make a note and point no. there that I'm so glad you brought this up, but does they very, very often someone will go back to their doctor and they'll be told that this is your brain disease coming back. Yes, yeah. yes, exactly, exactly.
1: So people who get brain zaps and dizziness and other really obvious physical symptoms may recognise that this is different and this is a withdrawal syndrome, but many people will only experience anxiety And discomfort and maybe a feeling of just being a bit foggy and feeling a bit different, a bit bit physically uncomfortable, but maybe nothing they can quite put their fingers on. And that can very easily be misinterpreted as having a relapse of anxiety or depression. So it's really important when people are coming down from their antidepressants that they recognize that there are these withdrawal symptoms and it, it when if they start to feel bad when they're with, when they're reducing the drug it doesn't necessarily mean that they're having a relapse what it may mean is that they just made too big a reduction they're experiencing some withdrawal symptoms if the if the symptoms aren't too bad they can just wait a bit and and see if the symptoms, go away with time as the brain of to the lower dose which they often will if they're really bad though they might need to go back up again either put the dose up a little bit or go back to their original dose and then reduce by a smaller amount so so this this is all really important okay. information for people who Very. are considering trying to come off their antidepressant after having thought about this 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 new information about the chemical
0: imbalance theory not being supported, not being justified. That's really important. And the NICE, the nice guidelines have changed. Now they're finally accepting that there's a, there are withdrawal effects. It because a lot of people have been told, oh, you can stop them anytime and there's very little. And now we know that that's not true. There's sufficient evidence, scientific evidence with guidelines have changed. One thing I wanted. I know people are thinking that are listening now, oh, what does that mean? Is it half a pull? Is it quarter of a pull? And I know that you've spoken about liquid, there's tapering strips, there's all kinds of things and resources. So would you mind, could you give some s- sort of kind of specific guidelines? Where could people go? What books, what resources, yes. maybe some, yes. and we'll put all these links. And what that means, you know, is it one skipping a day of tablets? Well, these, which I know some primary care physicians yeah. or GPs do, and I know that hasn't been a good thing to skip a day, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. It's got to be yeah. very, very yes. tapered and yes. so on. So you yes. can speak to that a little. Yeah.
1: Yes, absolutely. So there are some very good guidelines on the Royal College of Psychiatrists website written by my colleague, Dr Horowitz. And and they give guidance for reduction from various different sorts of antidepressants. It, It depends on the antidepressant you're on, and you can use liquids or tapering strips. Or sometimes it's fairly easy to break up tablets in order to reduce the dose by small amounts. Generally, it's not a good idea to skip doses because some drugs are excreted out of the system fairly rapidly. So if you miss a dose, then you'll go into withdrawal mm, in um, between the, the follow the, the day that you don't take the, the dose. You can even go into withdrawal before the next day, with some very short-acting drugs, so it's, some drugs it's okay that are longer-acting, but in general, it's um, it, it's it's best to avoid skipping doses. And you can you instead, you can use liquids, tapering strips, cutting tablets in order to reduce the doses. But yes, very good guidelines on guidance on the Royal College of Psychiatrists website, and I'll send you the link so you. Can Thank you, and we can add
0: website. that. In. Thank yeah. you, fantastic. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. A lot of us will drop anything to go and help someone we care about. We'll go out of our way to treat other people well, but how often do we give ourselves the same treatment? One of my resolutions for 2022 is to treat myself like I would my best friend. And one way I'm going to do this is to spend more time doing those things that make and bring me joy, such as walking my two puppies or reading novels in the bath. Therapy is another great way we can take care of ourselves. Indeed, you don't have to be in a crisis mode to benefit from therapy. Therapy can provide preventative and protective strategies so that when things do get tough, you'll know what to do. It's one of the best gifts you can give yourself. And this month, BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you that you matter just as much as everyone else does, and therapy is a great way to make sure you show up for yourself. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Give it a try and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp Online Therapy. Cleaning up the Mental Mess listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash That's betterhel dot com slash The link and details will be in the show notes. And I know that there's some other books and things as well. I know Peter Gotcha has a list. I know Sam Tamimi. So we'll add those kind of guidelines as well. Mm-hmm. Joanna, as usual, these, this information is, is so important. We've got a couple of minutes left. What what would you say would be people that are now sort of feeling like, well, that's great. I, this is, well, not so great. What I thought was the truth is not, the, you know, it's not the truth. The scientific evidence is there. There are these withdrawal effects. I wasn't told any of this. I'm in this position and, you know, these almost like maybe to summarize say that's where you're at this this these would be the steps that I would take. So just kind of to bring this to a kind of nice, simple conclusion yes. step one, step two, step three, just to give people some guidance
1: as a, as I said before, you know people need to really think carefully if they're taking antidepressants or if it's been antidepressants have been suggested about the messages in this podcast and and in other podcasts and interviews I've done what it means for them. I think people need to think, I think the main message I want to get across is to think about drugs differently. So, you know, to get away from this idea that drugs are working by rectifying an underlying abnormality, whether that's a chemical imbalance or any of the other various theories that have been put forward. We do not have evidence that that is the case. And it's really important that we understand that antidepressants and other other psychiatric drugs drugs. They're drugs that change the normal state of the body and the brain. Now, sometimes drugs can have effects that are useful or that people find useful, but it's, and and people need to reflect on the sorts of effects they're experiencing, the sort of changes that the drugs might be inducing in them and whether those effects are really useful or not. So are they experiencing numbing of, of any sort or? And, 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 you know, experiencing sexual side effects might be an indication. We know that sexual side effects are associated with emotional numbing. So that might be an indication that there's some emotional numbing there. And, and what do they feel about those effects? Do you know, do, do they think that those effects are helpful for them or not? So I think people really, really need to think carefully about what sort of changes the drugs are producing in them, whether they like those changes or not. And then they can make a decision about whether they want to stay on the drug or or start the drug that's being suggested or whether they want to not start it or get help with, with trying to come off. So I think, as I say, the main message is we need to understand drugs differently. This idea that they are working by rectifying some underlying abnormality is a misleading idea that has not been established and that leads people to underestimate the harmful effects of taking drugs, the the harmful effects that drugs can have on the brain and as a consequence on our
0: mental states and our our thoughts and behaviours. Excellent. That's incredible. I wanted to sort of wrap up and throw out a curveball in terms of something we don't have. We're going to curveball, but something that I have seen coming up in the interviews and something you and I were going to discuss as well, and that is the people are now saying, yes, let's go and do the ketamine. And I know you and... Uh, Dr. Mark Horowitz have done research on that and I know we don't have a huge amount of time to get into this now but I I do think we need to address that at some point and maybe you could just maybe give a broad overview in a a minute or so and then I would love to dive into that next time because people are asking, sending us a lot of messages through our website as well and about what about ketamine and I think that's so important because that's also just been another area that's been mishandled and a lot of the people that are countering the, and the psychiatrists that are challenging you are saying, hey, we've got these alternatives. we have got these safe alternatives that people can also look at like ketamine. But is it actually safe? And that's, you know, I know you're an expert there. So would you like to just give an overview statement and then we we'll definitely yes. take this deeper?
1: So if you think about ketamine and esketamine from a drug-centered point of view, what these drugs are, are drugs that induce a state of Mental alteration, which is characterized by euphoria. Some or at least for some people, some people like the effects, some people don't like them so much. Euphoria in this sort of sense of dissociations, sort of out-of-body experience. And that that will obviously make someone feel different and in the short term will will override or is likely to override underlying feelings of depression. It's very short-lived and the evidence that there is any ongoing effect on depression, depressive symptoms is very slim. And the other thing is that it is increasingly being presented in a disease-centered model. So Mm. initially, actually, the idea of ketamine and other psychedelics was being presented in a bit of a drug-centered model. It was acknowledged that these were mind-altering chemicals. Mm -hmm. And there was an idea that you know, that you might have a trip or, a, you know, a, a psychedelic experience, and that you would need a therapist to guide you through that and try and work out what that meant for you, might, might have, you know, awoken previous traumas. So that there, there's a whole idea of psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, which is really where this new psychedelic craze started, which is not, I, I don't think it's a crazy idea. I'm not sure it's quite as as effective or miraculous as many people are yeah. presenting it as. And personally, I think, although there may be some people who like the idea, I think there'll be a lot of people who will find a psychedelic experience really quite frightening.
0: Yeah,
1: But increasingly, ketamine and esketamine in particular are being presented as a disease-centred sort of treatment. They're being mm-hmm. presented as something that is rectifying an underlying abnormality. And the latest promotion for esketamine, this is so shocking, is suggesting that depression causes brain damage and this ischetamine is somehow rectified, oh somehow reversing that process of brain damage. What sort of a message is that to convey to people? That is terrible. That, that they, you know, they've got or they're going to yeah. soon brain damage and they need this drug. Of course they have, it's almost like blackmail saying no, something that's to terrible. someone. Almost like blackmail. Yeah. And the evidence on esketamine, that esketamine has any good, does any good at all, is very, very poor. It, didn't, it couldn't even pass the FDA criteria for getting licensed. The FDA had to change the rules in order to license esketamine so that, because they couldn't produce two positive trials for esketamine effects. So they changed it? the rules and they allowed the one positive trial to be combined with a withdrawal study which shows some positive effects. We know there are also problems with withdrawal studies, and that's how esketamine got a license. So the evidence for esketamine having any benefits is very slim, and there are lots of harmful and concerning effects uh, that we know can occur with the use of ketamine, and either have been shown so to be associated with esketamine as well, or we can predict might be associated with long-term esketamine use. So okay. I think oh. it's actually. A really worrying development overall. Although it, it came from a place that I can understand, the psychedelic assistive mm-hmm. psychotherapy. Maybe there's some value in, in in
0: that. It's morphing into something that actually I think we should be really worried about and could yeah. potentially be really harmful. Well, thank you for saying that, and and I'm so that's why I wanted to end with that because I want us to go into that in more depth, and because it's it's very important that people who have oh okay, well I'll go and do a and I'll get off my antidepressant. It's not the answer, and the fact that they think fixes brain damage is just a another whole area of discussion. So we will take this deeper and further. And once again, thank you for your excellent paper, for your time, for your work, for what you are contributing to this field of mental health. It's outstanding. And every time I talk to you, I learn so much. So thank you, Jana, for joining me again. And I look forward to seeing you very soon. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Caroline. I hope you found today's podcast interesting and helpful.